0: All right, you guys, Q&A show. I'm Scott Horton, and on the line is Eric Schuler. And, um, well, basically, it's me answering your questions and answers from the Reddit group, r slash Scott Horton Show. It's our private group, and uh, this show is for the members there. You guys get to hear it, too. Everybody does. But anyway, uh, that's where the questions come from. And But I can't stand recording one of these just sitting in a room by myself. So I got my buddy Eric on the line. Uh, to sit there and listen while I rant and rave, and to sort of pseudo interview me based on the questions that you guys have asked in the Reddit room. So, hey there, Eric. How the hell are you doing, man? Hey, I'm
1: doing well, Scott. How you doing?
0: I'm doing great. Good to talk to you again, dude.
1: Yeah. Good to talk to you too. Yeah. Well, let's just jump right in. We got um, lots of stuff here. We do. We'll see how much we get to. Uh, to get started, um, what do you think about the realist perspective? Because you wouldn't consider yourself quite a realist, and you had that interview with Stephen Walt recently.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So what, what, in your mind, what's wrong with the, the realist perspective?
0: Well, first, what's right about it is that they're far more restrained, typically speaking, than the so-called liberal interventionists, humanitarian interventionists, and neoconservatives. You know, really going back to McKinley, but they have to invoke ideology to justify doing things that are blatantly not in the national interests. And then they say that just proves how selfless and wonderful they are, um, you know, with their excuses. Whereas the realists just say, hey, if we gotta lie with Stalin to fight Hitler, we'll do that. If we have to, you know, turn right around and contain the Soviet Union afterwards, then I guess we'll have to do that too. And it's just more of a um a power politic thing. Uh, less reliant on the ideology of expanding of invoking American exceptionalism to you know as an excuse to really dominate other lands. So Stephen Walt is who endorsed my book. I hope I didn't do you think I bickered with him too bad on the show? Did you hear it? Um
1: Yeah, I heard it. I, I didn't think it was too
0: I, Yeah, I hope I wasn't I too was pushy, fine. but um so his book is is very interesting and really I didn't say the thing that I really wanted to say, which is it's really a eye opening book to see um, the way all of this is framed as simply an intellectual, an academic preference for one sort of grand strategy or another. And in the current grand strategy, millions and millions of people die all the time. In his version of the grand strategy, America would stay out of internal affairs of other nations, and really wouldn't even intervene in international wars, unless it came to a question of One major power coming to dominate not just any part of the world, because who cares if one power dominates Africa, I guess. He says the problem is if any one nation comes, whether Russia or Germany, comes to dominate Europe or whether one nation, whether it's Saudi, Iraq or Iran, comes to dominate the Middle East or whether one nation, China or Japan, uh, come to dominate East Asia. And so in order to prevent any one power from dominating any of those places, America should have a practice of offshore balancing, where we just make sure that no one side gets that out of whack in power relations to the other, so that we can keep doing business with everybody, keep them divided and conquered and and less threatening to the U.S. So this, to be perfectly frank about it, Walt's version of realism anyway, is about 15 clicks toward peace from where we are now. I mean, he is he is, you know, darn near Ron Paul on this on the scale of things uh, when it comes you know, in comparison to our policy now of picking a fight with everybody in Eurasia in, I mean, not in Europe, but in Eastern Europe in, of course, Southwest Asia and in East Asia as well. And so, you know, he's definitely against all that. Um, But you know, I think if anything, like what I was trying to get to with him in that in that interview, and I was left unsatisfied, but then again, I'm not sure if maybe he's right, and that was what was so frustrating to me. That in essence, they really do mean well. That, you know, uh, the very worst warmongers who we think of as just lion scheming power mongers with you know, board of directors jobs waiting for them or something like that. He says that, no, like honestly, it's just a difference of opinion. There are a lot of people who really believe that we've got to spread that democracy and that, you know, the world can't just keep spinning with autocratic states. And so America must use its benevolent and yet unmatched military power in order to achieve this brave new future for everyone's greater good, which is, To me, a pretty thin public relations scheme for a lot of rent seeking and a lot of real cruelty. Um, But, you know, I guess in essence, what he's saying is you don't really catch these people saying, oh, they're all just a bunch of sand and words anyway kill them all that they really don't that they really say like yeah all we got to do in other words remember laughing when condoleezza rice said that if you weren't for rack war two then you were the kind of people who said that rosa parks had to stay at the back of the bus because you don't believe that the arabs are good enough to have self-government and this kind of thing and we just laughed at that and thought you know think of the unlimited gall of this lady killing all of these people, turning the society upside down and saying everybody who doesn't assent to her means ends equation is too racist to think that Arab deserves to be free something like that. but I think what we missed was that was more or less her best conception of reality as she could express it. man <laughs> was that that is what she thought she was doing over there and um, even though we you know she's one of the worst villains of all. You know, there was even that anecdote, right, where she had dinner with Brent Scowcroft, and she says, we're bringing democracy to Iraq. And he says, no, you're not. She goes, well, we're bringing peace to Palestine. He goes, no, you're not either. What are you talking about, lady? And so, you know, that's the part that I think that's the part that really bothers me is the cognitive dissonance that, like, you know, they forget... uh, you know, avarice and cruelty and malevolence, or any of that—that that it's all just a bunch of you know, well-meaning yeah. enough. And 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 you know what? If that's really not true, because I don't know, I've met Air Force pilots who talked about how fun it was to turn civilians into hamburger meat and all that. So I know that it's not all just um, ideological purity up there spreading democracy. But in essence, there's enough of it that to someone like Walt who's a foreign policy expert at Harvard that he sees the ideological kind of framework of all of this imperialism as the paramount part of it that interests aren't really what drive it that what drives it are is you know primarily the belief on the part of the people of Washington DC that they really do know best which it does go to explain a lot. It it In a way, I reject it because it almost lets them off the hook, and it says that they're just naive and foolish and clumsy. When, you know, starting a war, I guess I really don't care what's in your brain at that point. Uh, starting a war is a war crime, and for a good reason, too, so... But anyway, I don't know. I'll tell you what. So I had this fight with him that you might remember about this dispute with him about Ron Paul, where I was saying, like, play the Hegelian dialectic correct. Whatever it is you don't like about Ron Paul, it's really wrong to pretend he's some kind of like beyond-the-pale bad person. He's clearly not. He's clearly a a wonderful gentleman in whatever way, even if you think his non-interventionism is just too total. I mean, Ron Paul told The Washington Post... We could defend this country with a couple of good submarines. <laughs> you know, give me a break. That, to me, that's what I want to hear, right? So, that's not what everybody wants to hear, though. Okay, but so my idea is, so let Ron Paul be the far end of the peace movement. Okay, but perfectly acceptable within the Overton, the far edge of the Overton window. I don't know who called it the Overton thing, but whatever. The index card of allowable opinion. Let Ron be the far edge of that with the warmongers on the other edge. And then you, Stephen Walt, who is frankly very much a peacemonger compared to the rest of these guys, let you be the moderate middle. So that instead of having to do what Ron says, they'll just have to settle for doing what you say and we'll all breathe a big sigh of relief, right? But then by by characterizing Ron Paul as somehow beyond the pale, like he's whatever, uh, disqualified from being part of the debate, then that means that Walt's realism is now the furthest end of allowable opinion. And now the best we're going to get is somewhere between Richard Pearl and Stephen Waltz. So what's that? David Frum or Hillary Clinton or something? Right. So I'm saying play the dialectic right, just like my old bumper sticker says, demand total liberty. You might get to keep some. You know, but you better settle for nothing less than everything, um, because otherwise you're going to get nothing at all. And so um, he didn't understand guess, what the hell I was talking about, but that's what I was trying to say.
1: Yeah, I, I guess I didn't realize that it was such a like. I didn't realize it was such a public split where the realists would be very kind of dismissive of like our level of non-interventionism or, or Ron Paul's. Like, is that?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, cause... early in the book he goes, "Oh yeah, sure, they smear all of us who are better than them as being isolationists." And then later in the book he smears Ron Paul as an isolationist. And oh, it's like and that... it, and you heard when I brought up and I go, "You know what? Maybe some of these people don't always mean well." He immediately broke into like, "Okay, Alex Jones and your trilateral commission and your council on foreign." And I was like, "Dude, I didn't say all of that." You know what I mean? Like he jumped yeah. to immediately like the caricature of a right-wing criticism of policy. And by the way, I mean, the Council on Foreign Relations was created by big business for big business. Who built the American empire? You know, I mean, give me a break. Right. The history of the Council on Foreign Relations is the history of the American empire in the 20th century, in the tw- into sure, the 21st, too.
1: But I, I just mean, like, is that idiosyncratic to him, or is it, like... You know, would basevich and like other people, no, that I would think consider it's, them in the realist camp. Like, no, I think, think basevich
0: I don't. I don't think I've ever heard. Man, I don't know. Let me think. Maybe well, Bešević has done that like to me like, too. Like, I mean, I think like, honestly, NATO, like, I, th- I look. People know, just, don't like, understand all the different kinds of left wingers or all the different kinds of right wingers. So it makes sense to me that if you're like some kind of fiscal conservative, realist, moderate, but still Harvard type, that you don't really understand that. The libertarian isolationists or the libertarian non-interventionists are a somewhat different brand than just infowars truthers or whatever. That there's a, a different set of priorities and and uh, and ideologies and things at play here. So for them, I think it's maybe a little too easy to lump us together. And then sure. and then also, you know, I guess if you're Stephen Walt, you don't want people saying. They, oh, you sound like a kook, dude, so you make sure to say, no, 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 no. I never said anyone meant wrong. All I said was I, you know, honestly disagree with your preferences, and let's just discuss this as academics, which is fair. That's his job, you know. Yeah. um, And uh, again, as I say, I think that may be the most enlightening thing about it, that I mean, think about the level of propaganda in the head of a U.S. Army private infantry man fighting in Ramadi in 2006, that he's here for whatever it is, it's a damn good reason that he and his boys are going out on these missions day after day, uh, you know, killing people, arresting people, and and doing all these things that they're doing in the heart of the war, while back at Harvard, or back, you know, uh Yale, or wherever, or at Um, this or that think tank there's a debate that's it's so academic it's simply like you know i think we don't need an onshore policy i think we could have an offshore policy oh you don't say jenkins well let's talk about that blah 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 and it's like well wait what do you mean you're saying that you don't have to do this at all you're saying that there's a whole group of foreign policy professionals who think that the idea of having boots on the ground in the Middle East is crazy from the jump, and that we should never even do never even consider doing such a thing? Um, oh, yeah, well, you know, this is an honest disagreement among professionals with elbow patches over hot tea. You know what I mean? While yeah. people are out there dying because they believe that somebody gives a shit enough to make sure that it's worth their while to be risking their lives, you know, and to be killing people. Do you think,
1: I mean, I I feel like part of this is that if you, you know, if you're in that chair in, in some way, you know, whether you're on either side of that academic debate, which I mean, I think it is fair that the people in that debate conceive of it as an academic debate. I think whatever else is true, that is, but Of course, you're there. You don't have to assume good intention. I mean, I know he assumes good intentions or assigns good intentions to them. But there's also that you're, you know, it kind of evolves over time, because if you get a really cushy job pushing this war, like you kind of you learn to rationalize things. And so you didn't you don't you know, you don't have to completely let them off the hook. Like maybe now they convince themselves like, no, 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 we really are doing the Lord's work. With this whole aggressive war thing, right? But n- nobody wants to go go to work and think what they're doing is like actively evil. It takes a special right. type of person to do that. So you, you know, so I, I'm sure by the time they're at a level of you know Condoleezza Rice or whatever, they probably really have convinced themselves that nah, what we're doing, this is definitely the right thing. Yeah, collateral
0: yeah. damage. And I think at the same time, it's also fair to say that if you're just you know as Pollyanna as can be. As your policies kill a million people, then you're still evil. And that maybe you're even more evil if you're that willing to inflict this level of grief in order to achieve some end that you entertain in your daydreams. To hell with you. How about that, too? You know, maybe these people, you know, maybe Anne-Marie Slaughter only wants to free the Libyans, but look what she really did to them. You know, and how dare she think she had the right? And I'm all, she was actually out of government at the time. I'm just picking on her because she's just so horrible. All of them are like that, though. That, like, oh, look at what we're doing that's so good. And look at how proud of ourselves that we are. Give each other awards and ribbons and medals and all this crap. And it's, and I, I, I'm not talking about the soldiers, I'm talking about the think tankers. You know, yeah. I'm talking about these, you know, these people with the big plans who never seem to adjust for reality at all. I mean for example, can you imagine being all excited to start a war in Libya after what had happened in Iraq War two? I mean Iraq War II was a thing, and then right as it was ending, two thousand eleven, they attack Libya and overthrow the next secular dictator with the clean shaven chin in line. So like really? Oh yeah, no, don't worry. It's going to be different this time. We're all going to really look like heroes this time. They're going to greet us with flowers and candy for real this time. We're going to make That's a model true. democracy out of the country this time. After what just happened wasn't even quite done failing yet. You know? Yeah. It's just well, but, I mean, Man, it is something else to behold, honestly. You know that bubble that um that groupthink consensus.
1: And, and not to play humanitarian interventionist advocate too much here, but uh, I mean, from their perspective, you can see how if how they conceive the failure of Iraq to just be like, well, George Bush is incompetent and the Republicans did it. And you conceive of, you know, all of life as like a partisan us versus them thing. Then it's like, well, if our guy is in charge, then clearly it's not going to be such a yeah. complete debacle. And I'm, I am that's had to be what it is. I mean, we had. We got these I mean I can kind of see Obama that for Hillary
0: I can kind of see that for spreading the surge to Afghanistan but start cuz we're already there in 911 and this and that whatever but as the background but starting a whole new one from Gaddafi a guy who had been on the outs since 86 and Bush had brought in from the cold in 2003 as long as he gave up his centrifuges and which weren't active they're were just sitting in crates but anyway as long as he give up his centrifuge equipment, that he'd be let back in from the cold. He helped torture and murder Al Qaeda guys for George Bush for all those years from 03 through 08, and including Sheikh Al Libi, who the CIA and Egyptians tortured into implicating Saddam for helping train Al Qaeda guys. So, yeah. um, you know, and right when they're trying to teach the lesson. That well, Saddam, he should have disarmed faster, or proven how well he disarmed faster or better, or something, whatever, something. I don't know. Uh, the Iranians, they better look out. We might, we might bomb them if they keep adding their centrifuges. The North Koreans, well, we're leaving them alone because they broke out toward nukes so fast we couldn't stop them, and so after Bush pushed them out of the treaty, so they got a free pass. And then Libya they give up their stuff just like Saddam had given up his and he gets invaded. So it's as though they were trying to send the message to Iran that you can't negotiate with evil. <laughs> you are going to have to make nuclear weapons. It's the only way to save your ass. Right? Like if that was deliberately what they were trying to tell the Iranians, that would have been the way to do it. And not that it worked. The Iranians still never went for a nuclear bomb, but you know, the lesson's pretty clear. If the Americans don't like you, look out. They're coming unless you have yeah. an atom bomb, in which case they'll back down because they're actually not that tough. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So,
1: yeah. No, it's, it's an interesting question. And it's tough to not to stick on this, but it's tough to square the everybody is, you know, good intention has good intentions with is it, is it Wolfowitz or who is the one in, in the Iraq war? where they said, like, well, you know, we chose this rationale for bureaucratic reasons. Yeah, that was Wolfowitz.
0: And see, and of course, he was the one who, out of all the neocons anyway, was probably the least cynical and most honest about his intent to create a new Western-style democracy there. You know, he was the guy who supposedly had chimed in and convinced Ronald Reagan to stop backing Ferdinand Marcos in the Philippines. And to tell Marcos, that's it. Your game is up. Leave town. Aquino won the election, and she's taken office, and you're done. Move to Hawaii, and that was it. And that it was, and because Wolfowitz said that, look, man, we can't be such hypocrites all the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, come on. Yeah. And uh, and so I think, uh, well, Basevich has written about this in in quite a bit of detail. That Wolfowitz thought he was right. That this is going to work. And, of course, Chalabi had fed him all this nonsense about how the Iraqi Shia just love being told what to do, man. And so, you know, whoever we put in charge will be loyal to us. And then we'll be in the perfect position to put all this pressure on Iran. When, of course, that was just completely ridiculous. And Iran was in the driver's seat of America's war from almost the beginning, which is actually part of what also we were asked about here on the list. So, let's talk about that. So, this is part of why they all hate Iran so much. So, the first part of why they all hate Iran so much is the Iranian revolution and the hostage crisis. And, you know, I think it's really important to note that the CIA and the State Department told Jimmy Carter to go ahead and tell the French to let... The Ayatollah Khomeini get on the plane and go back to Iran to take over the revolution and take and seize power because they said, Don't worry, we know this guy, he's all right. He helped us overthrow Mossadegh back in 1953, and so he helped lead the right wing mobs back then to destabilize the government during that coup. And so, um, so they went with that, but then it wasn't until uh, Jimmy Carter let the Shah into the U.S. for for cancer treatment that caused the riots and the seizing of the hostages at the embassy and the real crisis. And then the failed uh, special operations mission in the desert with the helicopters crashing and all this Eagle one, whatever. And so
1: hey, what was the time lag like between the initial revolution <coughs> and uh, like the hostage crisis? When did when it started? When they it start, was like uh, a week,
0: it was or okay. uh, th- three or four days. I think it was just right all at the same time. Like, you know, like Almost at the same time. Certainly when people look back at it, the hostages were taken on the first day. But no. It was actually... It had been a few days. The Americans were okay with the revolution at first. Because the Shah was dying of cancer anyway. And his government was falling apart anyway. So it was like, well, I guess, you know. And Jimmy Carter didn't want to tell the military to just massacre everybody in the street. Which there was pressure on him to do that. And he didn't want to do that, to his credit. Um, but... Uh, so then... Once the hostages were taken, then that was the PR disaster of a lifetime, right? There was no fixing that. And then they're burning flags and calling America the great Satan and all of this. So any idea that we're going to be able to get along, at least overtly, <clears throat> uh, was off at that point. Although I think Robert Perry and Gary Sick and others really did show the case of the October surprise that the Reagan government made a deal with the Ayatollah that they would continue to hold the hostages longer after they were ready to release them, that they would hold the hostages until Carter was gone. And then literally the day Reagan was inaugurated, they freed the last of them. And so, you know, which made Reagan look great and all that. But that was part of the arrangement to because, uh, you know, Carter might have been at least in a better position to win the election, if he'd gotten the hostages out by the time of election day, you know? right. Yeah. um so there was part of and then of course the whole iran contra scandal grew out of those contacts from the very beginning of the Reagan administration so there was double dealing all along there and of course the israelis continued to have a relationship with the iranians all along during that time too Reagan ended up during iran contra they were selling missiles to iran through israel they're basically having israel sell missiles to iran and then we'd reimburse them with new missiles and this kind of thing um right and so uh you know that was all so that. even
1: though we're publicly hostile with them at that time or the us is publicly hostile they're still they're still cooperating through the back channel so it's not right. it's not real hostility like it seems to be now
0: well at the same time though i mean the reagan administration did support saddam hussein's war jimmy carter gave him the green light to invade after the revolution and Um, And the Reagan administration continued that policy and continued to back him throughout the entire 1980s and the war killed half a million people on each side. And Hussein, of course, thought it would be easy and and was worried that his supermajority Shiite population might side with the Iranian Shiite revolution. So he decided to hurry up and conscript them and enforce their loyalty to their national sect rather than their religious sect and send them to war uh, for the state. And then as the seed of so much that came later, some of the Iraqis fled to Iran and took the Iranian side at that time. And those were the guys who later became the Iraqi government, the Bada Brigade, the Supreme Islamic Council, the Dawa Party, and all the guys that Bush Jr. ended up empowering in in uh, Iraq War II. And so that's another part of why they... Well, I'll get back to that in a second. Another part of why they hate them so much is Iran's role in Iraq War II. But in the 90s, Gareth Porter shows this in his book Manufactured Crisis about the Iran nuclear program that Yitzhak Rabin trying to give up as much of the West Bank as he was trying to give up uh, as a Palestinian state... Was trying to basically distract the right wing hawks in Israel by saying, look, Iran is the threat. Iran is the threat. And that it was like, I guess, somewhat working as a tactic at the time. But then a Netanyahu follower assassinated Rabin. And then um, I think Oh, uh, Shimon Peres became. I'm almost positive as Perez became president, uh, prime minister for just a minute, uh, and then Netanyahu came in after that, and then Ariel Sharon, and then Ehud Olmert, and then uh, now Netanyahu again. And ever since, the idea has been that anytime anyone says anything at all about justice for the Palestinians. It's, look, Iran, to distract from the fact that they'll never give up any of the West Bank, that it's from the river to the sea, will always be under the control of the Israelis and the Palestinians, uh, you know, can just lump it, basically. And what's that you say? Iran, 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 uh, in order to drown you out, whatever you have to say about Palestine. And in fact, a great uh, place for me to bring up this new, it's not new, it's a newly released, newly leaked Uh, Highly suppressed for like two years documentary about the Israel lobby by Al Jazeera where they've they got a young Jewish British uh, peacenik. To go undercover in the Israel lobby with a hidden camera and microphone and just do absolute top-notch investigative journalism. I mean, this is the, you know, Greg Palast, eat your heart out, you know, hidden camera stuff. I mean, this is just, it's beautiful, the work that they've done here. Uh, you really should see it. It's at the Electronic Intifada. Uh, it's Four parts, but it's worth it. Seriously, like I'm only I'm at the uh, like very beginning of part three now. But man, I'm telling you, it's really great. And um, so, man, I forgot my tangent. What was I going to say about that Israel lobby documentary there? Um,
1: uh, I'm not sure where you're going with the Israel lobby um, part. But where we were is that essentially the hostility to Iran from Israel's perspective started as kind of. Oh, oh, I know what it was. I
0: know what it was. Yeah, yeah. And. All right, so I got the time. Lasted. I got the time written down, and there's a clip in this documentary where the guy says uh, the the Israel lobbyist says, "You know, in in Washington D.C., there's some talk about the Palestinians, but when I go to New York and uh, deal with the power players in New York, nobody ever even says a word about the Palestinians. It's a non-issue. It doesn't even matter. It's not on anybody's radar. Nobody cares. All they talk about is Iran." And it's like, yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and that's the way it's meant to be. Um, even though Iran is no threat to Israel. Iran does sell weapons to Hezbollah. And they do. Hezbollah is, you know, kind of their 51st state, the way uh, Israel is America's 51st state kind of a thing. Um, you know, and they do support Hezbollah. But Hezbollah is not an offensive threat to Israel. They're just powerful enough to keep Israel out. They're not powerful enough to invade Israel uh, to try to take territory away from them or anything like that. Um, and I've never seen any indication that they mean to build up their forces beyond a serious, incredible deterrent. Um, so we'll get back to the Lebanon war. But that's that's a huge that's really the main beef that Israel has with Iran is that they back Hezbollah um, and they back uh you know, the Syrian government, which is allied with Shiite power in, in what, Syria.
1: In the uh, when it started, when uh, with Rabin, when he was started to make the Iran case, were they pretty active supporting Hezbollah at that time? St- like, I think was so. That yeah.
0: Early? Yeah. I think they've been pretty steady uh, with Hezbollah this whole time since it was created back in the early 80s. Um, okay. Now, my understanding is they've cut off their support for Hamas, or at least to a great degree. Uh, due to the fact that Hamas took the side of the revolt, so-called the revolution, uh, uprising, foreign mercenary-backed war in Syria, um, American war in Syria there. And so Iran was mad about that and, and cut Hamas off. But um, so Iran's role in Iraq War too. so this is a big part of why the Americans hate them so much, including all the Marines that run... The Trump administration, his chief of staff, his secretary of defense, his uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff um, is, uh, you know, they have a grudge big time from Iraq War II. So one thing I'm always trying to emphasize about Iraq War II, I was just kind of alluding to this, is when Bush Jr. invaded in 2003, the Iranian-sponsored Iraqi militias who'd been hiding in Iran since 1980 or so came across the border. They had tried to do this when Bush Senior encouraged the uprising in nineteen ninety one, but when he realized the Iranian backed factions were taking the lead in the revolt, he balked and, you know, stabbed them in the back, left them high and dry for Saddam to massacre. And that became the excuse for the no-fly zones that became the excuse to stay in Saudi that got us attacked on 9/11 and became the excuse for Bush to then Bush Jr to then pick up where his father left off and where his father left off was again importing Iranian Shiite revolutionary power into Iraq where the supermajority of the population are Shiites and so they fought this the first major stage of the war the first few major stages of the war were fought to ensconce Iran's favorite puppets in power. And that's, again, the Dawa Party and the Supreme Islamic Council. Now, the third leg on the stool of Shiite power in Iraq, the third major leg anyway, is Muqtada al-Sadr. Well, he was the son of the guy who did not flee to Iran but stayed in Iraq and was martyred by Saddam Hussein. His father-in-law also had been murdered by Saddam Hussein. And so, as soon as Baghdad fell, Saddam City was renamed Sadr City. And it wasn't after Muqtada. It was after his father. He was inheriting all this legitimacy from this important Shiite religious leader. And um, he was a nationalist. He was an Arab nationalist, as, you know, as well as being a Shiite religious leader. And... You know, from almost the beginning of the war, urged an alliance with the Sunni Arabs and the Kurds to, you know, form some kind of peace deal for uh, for shared rule in the capital and to force the Iranians and the Americans to leave. So the Americans could have settled for that and said, "Okay, Muqtada. You and your guys, you do your thing, but you promise you're going to try to limit Iranian influence and whatever. And in fact, the Iranians and their puppets, they really wanted a strong federalism like Joe Biden to split the country apart, to take Iraqi Shia stand and to just leave the Sunnis uh, out in the desert to burn. Because trying to rule over them is more, you know, uh, more to bite off than they can chew. So why bother? where Muqtada didn't want to rule over them. He wanted to make you know an, an agreement with them, an alliance with them. So he consistently not just denounced, oh, I don't like Iran like some slogan. He said, look, what Iran is doing here in Iraq is really bad. And what their factions are doing is really bad. They, like the Americans, are trying to screw everything up. And we ought to all join together as Iraqis and kick the Iranians and the Americans out. Well, so by saying that, the Americans... They really should have gone for it. Instead, they said, no, we're going to stay, and we're going to fight for the United Iraqi Alliance, which includes Sadr. But we're going to emphasize empowering the Supreme Islamic Council and the Dawah Party. All the prime ministers up until two weeks ago have been Dawah Party prime ministers, and then the new guy is from Skiri. Um, But it was Jafari, and then Maliki, and then Amiri, and then now it's... uh, Ahmadi, who is the Supreme Islamic Council guy, um, have been the prime ministers this whole time. Um, But so uh, the Americans constantly targeted Sadr and his faction, who were, you know, at times fought insurgencies, particularly in 2004, against the U.S. And then again... Later in 2008, by that time the Americans had chased Solder into Iran. By the way, I interviewed Danny Sherson all about this, and he fought in the surge in Solder City in 2007, and is still a major in the army and knows what the hell he's talking about when we talk about it. Um, and so um, they chased Solder into Iran. That was the only place he could go to be safe as the Americans accused his most nationalist Shiite faction of being the most Iranian-tied. Well, they were actually fighting for the two most Iranian-tied factions, Skiri and Dawa, And again, I don't know if I said this, Skiri's army is called the Badr Corps. And that became the Iraqi army. David Petraeus made them the Iraqi army. And so then, by the time the surge came in 2007 the game was on now that the ethnic cleansing campaign is or sectarian cleansing campaign is mostly over and the sunni arabs have been kicked out of baghdad now who is going to have the most influence over the new government the usa which has all this money and weapons that they are dependent on or the Iranians who have some money and weapons and are their religious kinsmen and the nation next door, um, and this is not to say that the Iraqi Shia are all just outright sock puppets of the Iranians, but they're the ones in power now are their friends, uh, to be sure. And so, I guess so. America lost that battle. So, so. They did. Americans did about five hundred Americans died. Out of forty five hundred Americans that died in Iraq War II, four thousand of them died fighting the Sunni-based insurgency, fighting for the Shiite militias. But they also about five hundred of them died fighting against the Shiite militias. And that was just as Danny Sherson, you know, re-verified to me on the show the other day. That was because America had targeted them and had picked the fight against them. And it sounds if you're confused, you should be kinda cause it's crazy, right? Because even in the book Good Soldiers by David Finkel, the commander, who's a war criminal, Colonel Kozlarich, who ordered his men to fire on innocent civilians, um, as is, you know, he's accused of three of his soldiers have accused him of that, two of them on the record on my show, so enough said there. But even Colonel Kozlarich was caught by the Washington Post reporter Finkel, kind of musing to himself, huh? Isn't it kind of weird that we're fighting against Sauter's group at the same time that we're really fighting to install his party in power right now? <laughs> anyway, let's get back to work out there, boys. And then they go right back out to work. And in fact, at only one other place does the author of the book muse the same thing. Hmm, I thought to myself, it does seem mildly ironic that we're fighting against the people we're putting in power here. But now, so to the way the question was, was put in the, in the uh, Reddit group, Every one of those soldiers who were killed by the Shia were killed by Iran. But that's not true. Iran was helping them. Um, But even the accusation that all of the explosively formed penetrators, the Shiites, IEDs, that had copper cores and were shaped charges meant for penetrating armor better than the previous IEDs of the Sunni-based insurgency... There was this huge propaganda campaign in 2007, and it was a lie. It was a dirty, filthy, stinking, and wildly debunked lie that all of these bombs were coming from Iran. And in fact, Gareth showed how really it was Hezbollah that were the innovators in the bombs and had come to Iraq to teach the Shiite militias how to do it, not Iranians, but Lebanese. And... um, And But anyway, they were found over and over and over again in Iraq. The factories that made them were found over and over again. And I even, at one time, there was an article in the Christian Science Monitor about how this mission went out fighting against the Shiites. And they found this uh, explosively formed penetrator factory. And then um, the Washington Post ran the story. And excised that paragraph from the story and replaced it with one that says, the army says all these bombs come from Iran. So they knew they were lying. The Washington Post. And they were, and so, in fact, my blog entry about that at the time is titled Washington Post Liars Caught at antiwar.com and then we had also the EFPs are made in Iraq by Iraqis and if you just search my name in EFPs you'll find all kinds of stuff and there was Phil Giraldi did did a great study on this and there was some guy I can never remember his name who did like this in depth like university level study about everything we know about these EFPs what a damned lie it was that really any of them could have been shown uh, as coming from Iran so when David French said Oh, Iran did this and Iran did that prepare for a storm of talking points that you notice he's not specific right he just makes these claims where he doesn't have to get into the details because he wouldn't be able to prove what he's saying because he can't because it's not true right just okay, like no, one of no, the things he's quoted second, saying one more one of the things he's quoted saying is that they tried to assassinate somebody on American soil doesn't say who because then you could check it you're just supposed to go wow they did oh okay I guess Dave French knows what he's talking about derp But what he's talking about, obviously, is the fake lie, ridiculous hoax of the Corpus Christi uh, used car salesman who supposedly supposedly was going to kill the Saudi ambassador, who wasn't even a princeling, who was just some schmuck at the time. And that he was going to blow up this restaurant in Lily White, Washington, D.C., where all the important people are afraid now to go to their cafe because of what the Iranians might do to them. And yet it was a total lie. And so here, Ray Close and Ray McGovern and Flint Leverett and Phil Giraldi and Ray, McGo- I said Ray McGovern and uh, uh, Bob Bear. And there's one more... Um, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting. I know there were six former CIA officers who came out within the first day and said, this is a lie. don't believe it. And they knew some of them, at least, were explicitly speaking for their own sources in the intelligence community who said that it was a bunch of crap. And so, yeah, tell me another one, David French, about Iran. Does that make any sense to you at all? Iran uses Hezbollah to hire a Corpus Christi car dealer to bomb a Washington, D.C. restaurant to kill a nobody, Saudi functionary. If you believe that, you've just been raped in the brain hole and ask yourself how you're so easy, how you're so easy to manipulate. Get real. Sorry. They just
1: made it really convoluted so that it would be hard to trace back to them, Scott, obviously.
0: Yeah. obviously you know what, what if they're saying there. that a foreign government did a thing, guess what? There's four fingers pointed back at them. Get real. What what century are we living in here where the Americans are the poor helpless victims of the dangerous world juggernaut onslaught headed this way?
1: <laughs> so so let's back up for for one thing because you mentioned so the claim is specifically uh, when it, when people say that Iran killed all, you know, depending on how careful they're attempting to be, which is never very. Um, Iran killed all – is responsible for all the deaths of the Americans or all the um, deaths fighting the Shia militias. Are they saying that all of the, the IEDs that killed soldiers were shipped from Iran? Yes. Or, or because yes. you mentioned – and, and, so and also sense, that,
0: right. that those Shiite militias simply were agents of the Iranians and were doing Iran's bidding in fighting that war. Which really just ignores the fact that they picked the fight with Sadr. They invaded right. East, East Baghdad and they invaded Najaf and they picked that fight. And then it was but one up. that they couldn't win. I mean, guess what? George W. Bush made some bets and they didn't pan out. And so then right. what happened? It, it was Sauder who was still the more nationalist, not the more Iranian-tied. Who forced Maliki, who was the more Iranian-tied, the prime minister, but he required Sadr's support. And Sadr told Maliki that you have to tell the Americans to leave. And Maliki did. And so, in other words, America fought this war for these Shiite factions. And then they said, thanks, now get the hell out. And here's a few EFPs for good measures so that you know that it isn't just the Sunnis who don't want you and resent you for backing us this whole time. We don't want you either. You have overstayed your welcome. You've done all the sectarian cleansing we needed you to help with. And so now you can go. And so all David Thank French you. is doing, all the right-wingers are doing, is crying that you know they stole a rack fair and square, but they didn't get to keep it.
1: Right, but doesn't the get the hell out from Malachi, That comes later after the most of the comes it comes violence in 08, yeah.
0: No? I mean it comes okay. it comes after they fought Solder to a standstill basically. You know, okay. in the in the surge and then at at one point um if I remember right this was in the spring of 08 or maybe it was in the summer of 08. Maybe it was in the summer of 07, man. Let me think right. I think it was in the summer of 08 that Maliki preempted a a planned American attack on the Sadrists by launching one himself with the Iraqi army, you know, Bada Brigade and and getting bogged down and then basically withdrawing. But he had preempted the American attempt uh, that was coming soon. And so that was good enough. He, You know, that was mission accomplished as far as he was concerned there in preventing the Americans from coming after Sauder again. And um, so, yeah, anyways. Um, so, yeah, it's just, it was really, I mean, Sauder became more and more Iranian type. It was the Americans who pushed him further and further toward Iran. And it yeah. was when they said that, you know, some Iraqi militia guys were going to Iran for training and then coming back and fighting the Americans with that training. That may be true. I guess I don't I can't recall anybody particularly debunking that. But, you know, it, well, the the real question, the real point is, like, why would Iran intervene in the war? Right. Iran would intervene in the war because we invaded a country, started a, an aggressive war, changed the government there and fought a civil war for their compadres. And they just wanted to make sure that everything got tied up with a bow at the end. And so, thanks a lot for all your efforts, Americans. You can go now, was basically the point of view of the Ayatollah Khamenei in Iran and Sistani down in Basra. You know, that thank you for getting rid of Saddam for us. Thank you for kicking all the Sunnis out of Baghdad. Your assistance is no longer necessary. So, you know, and here's here's 500 dead guys to carry on your backs on the way out to show that we mean that. I mean, you'd be pissed off if you were a Republican too. You killed all those people and this is all you got. Nothing.
1: Okay. I got two related questions to this just to make sure that we, you know, kind of put a nail in this one. So you mentioned that um, Hezbollah fighters from Lebanon, which we've already talked about, Iran does support them. They came to to train um, or help train some of the Iraqi militias on how to
0: on how Iran to make the EFP's, yeah.
1: But but when mm-hmm. when the the hawks say that do they ever blame Iran for that like through that route? Like see, I can't I don't Hezbo remember anything like
0: that. No, that's a good question, okay. but I don't think so. And okay. and seriously like you know, cry and stomp your feet that the Iranians taught Iraqis how to make EFP's, maybe if that's the accusation, that ain't much. Right. You know? Right. Okay. And, and, the and I seriously, gonna... like, if anyone wants to be honest and do the work, you'll find scores of episodes of the EFP factories being found in Iraq. Right. They were made in Iraq by Iraqis you know, possibly with Iranian advice. But then again, that only goes back to raising all those questions about why were we fighting a war for Iran? I thought our government hated Iran. And the answer is, yeah, but that's because Paul Wolfowitz is a stupid idiot. Sort of back to how well-meaning he is. He thought it was going to be easy. He thought yeah. it was going to go his way. And a lot of things turned out to go other ways than what he was anticipating, you know? And, and, so- and again, I'm not trying to let this son of a bitch off the hook. You know, you hang them, I'll hold the rope. I'm just saying that, I mean, honestly, meaning well is not a good enough excuse for starting a war. And, and, I, and I don't attribute Paul Wolfowitz's, you know, somewhat naivete there to, say, Douglas Fythe or David Worms or, or Richard Pearl, who I think are a lot more cynical sons of bitches and, and, you know, kind of raise a whole different set of questions than Paul Wolfowitz, who just is really sure... You know, but
1: well, and it and it does get to the point where, you know, libertarians always say you don't want to judge politicians by their intentions because hey, you can't trust them. But, you know, right. you got to judge it by what they do. And this is another indication of that. Right. Uh, so so one other question on on this Iraq Iran thing, though, we when you mentioned that the Americans picked Skiri and Dawa, the more Iranian backed factions at the time over mm-hmm. the more nationalist one, d- did they understand? Do you think they were? Did they just. From what you can tell, is it that they got it wrong and they thought those were – or is it just that they didn't like the idea that they're going to support a team that is going to kick them out immediately? And-
0: yeah, I mean I think what- I think they did understand that these are the most Iranian-backed factions, but they didn't think they had anybody else really to go with. You know, okay. Muhtad al-Sadr is really kind of a working-class schlub, whereas mm-hmm. Abdulaziz al-Hakim, who is the leader of the Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution in Iraq, wore all these golden robes and all of this stuff, and could, you know, through his translator, talk with George Bush as a fellow upper-class guy or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and 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 there, there weren't really many people who could... Who could, do, who could impress them as, oh, here's a guy sophisticated enough to work with. You know what I mean? Sure. Right. Um, so I think at some level, it depends on who's they and how smart and at what time during these debates. But at some level, I think the Americans and the Iranians realize we're both... We hate each other. We refuse to work with each other on this, but this is a joint condominium. We are working together to build this new government, and then it's a race, in a sense, to see which of us they need the most. And the answer was always obvious to critics that it was going to be the Iranians. Supreme right. Islamic Council been living in Iran for 30 years, man. What do you think's going to happen? <laughs> you know? <laughs> in fact, Justin Raimondo wrote an article... Like two or three years, I think, before I think like I think it was a solid two years, or three years even before the war, where he said, "Hey, look what, look what happens if you get a regime change in Iraq. You got the Shiite group, the Supreme Islamic Council. The State Department just tried to give them a bunch of money and they refused it and said, "We don't need you, you know, because they're dependent on Iran." And so yeah. this is the kind of thing that he was like. This is the kind of thing you need to look out for when you invade Iraq. <laughs> so you're gonna have these guys who you're gonna be their friend, but that doesn't mean they're gonna be yours. Right. And so here yeah. we are.
1: It's a, you, that theme comes up a lot in U.S. foreign policy. They're gonna, we're gonna be their friend and not the other way around. It's very,
0: yeah. Very, ask very Ambassador beautiful. Stevens about that.
1: Yeah. Hey, um, okay, so so, another, so Lebanon 06. Uh, I was going close to there, which is, okay. so is Hezbollah a terrorist organization? And also, what's the truth of the claim that the Iranians are the greatest state sponsor of terrorism, trademarked?
0: Okay, so Hezbollah, you know what? Yes, all governments are terrorist organizations. And I don't mean that as a cop-out. I mean, really, ask Bob Higgs. There's a serious gentleman. All states are based on fear. At the very least, that what might happen to you if we weren't here to be your security force to protect you is the very bottom line of all governments. And so, you know, Hezbollah is a mini state. It's basically a a militia that absolutely did use terrorist tactics that grew into a mini state, just like Israel itself. And it's been since 1999 since they did a terrorist attack. They offer all kinds of goods and services and or not goods, but, you know, government services yeah. uh, to the people of Lebanese Shia or whatever they call it there in the, the southern part, predominantly Shiite Arab part of Lebanon. And they participate in the gov- in the Democratic government of Lebanon that is backed by the United States of America which is a very complicated confessional system, it's called, where you have, and I'm going to get this all wrong, I'm just making it up for example's sake, but you have a Marianite Christian is always the uh, the president, and uh, a Sunni Arab is always the prime minister, and a Shiite Arab is always the secretary of the interior or whatever, right? Like And, it, and it's, it's divided like that. Um, And that's a government that the U.S. government supports. And in fact, the current prime minister there is supported by a coalition of Hezbollah and the Christians who are explicitly backed by the U.S. And so they play the game of democracy within the American Western system as as, you know, the international community would have Lebanon proceed, you know, to continue on doing it this way. And and they play that game within the rules And, you know, they, they only exist because Israel invaded in 1982 in order to rouse the PLO out of there. But the Shiite Arabs weren't responsible for that. The Shiite Arabs didn't do anything to Israel. In fact, you know, they say that they initially like stood back and said, good, get rid of Arafat and all these goons for us, man. We don't want them around here anyway. It's not like they're from there. And, um. And then, but the Israelis stayed and then treated them like crap. You know, killed them. Destroyed their property. And stayed. And so up grew up this local Shiite militia, which fought them tooth and nail for 20 years. And it took until the year 2000 that the Israelis finally withdrew, having achieved nothing. And, you know, now they have a force to reckon with on the southern border of Lebanon that they never had before and, and one that they'll never stop crying about and one that we all supposedly have to have a war with Iran because they're mad because Iran supports this group that only exists because of their bad choices in the first place and that frankly right. unless they want to reinvade Lebanon and steal the Latani River like you know the original Zionists planned back when and what have you then they don't have anything to fight about you know, um, Hezbollah, the, the 2006 war broke out when Hezbollah kidnapped or, you know, captured, not kidnapped, they're not civilians, they're soldiers. They they captured two Israeli soldiers on, uh, you know, a near border mission there or something. And it was in response, you know, partially to a massacre on the beach in Gaza, a family that the Israelis killed about a week before and there were other tensions going on. It was one of those tit for tat kind of deals, and they expected. They said later, "Geez, we just thought we'd trade them for a couple of our captives or this kind of thing." But the Israelis, you know, Ehud Olmert just seized on the opportunity to launch a war. Uh, they said they were just going to smash and destroy Hezbollah. They they really did not have to launch the war at all. Uh, They took the hardest line possible, no negotiations, let's just do this thing, kind of attitude. And they fought for about a month in the summer of, you know, beginning in the uh, very end of July, beginning of August of 2006. And um, I think they fought for about four weeks, and then they achieved nothing. And Hezbollah drove them back. And, you know, they had major losses of armor and all this kind of thing. There were all kind of quotes from the generals and the Israeli press saying, oh, man, they've got some new tactics that we're going to have to learn how to deal with. They really got us by surprise. And there were like, you know, lots of finger pointing and recriminations because of how mm-hmm. bad a job the IDF had done up against this militia that is their own Frankenstein nightmare come true. Um, you know, and now so back to this bogus you know, pretended assassination plot in Washington, D.C., has Hezbollah ever done a thing to you and me? No. they attacked the Marines. It wasn't even them. It was the Amal militia. It was the Iranians were behind the Amal militia. It wasn't even Hezbollah that attacked the Marines in Beirut in 1983. And even though we might love Marines and be really patriotic and this and that, it's not really terrorism. I mean, they were a military target there. And Ronald Reagan admitted and in his diary and his memoirs said he never should have sent them there in the first place. That everybody tried to stop him from putting them there in the first place was right and as soon as the marines got bombed, he pulled whoever was left back out again and said he he was crazy to try to get involved in the civil war in Lebanon because of the irrationality of Middle Eastern politics as he put it. Fair enough. <clears throat> and so Anyway, um, you know, and this is the whole thing about, so, you know, Iran is the biggest state sponsor of terrorism in the world. I mean, anytime you hear a slogan like that, obviously you ought to immediately ask for specifics and compared to what? And all kinds of critical questions, especially when it's something that they just say over and over and over again. It's because they have to just say it over and over again to make it seem true because they can't show that it's true because of course it's not Iran Assad and his Syrian army Hezbollah the axis of Shiite power in the Middle East they didn't attack us on September 11th Iraq which is now part of the Iranian axis thanks to the United States in Iraq War 2 they didn't attack us on September 11th in fact their old sunni this regime didn't either. It was a bunch of citizens of Saudi and Egypt who attacked us because we're too close to their governments, too friendly of allies with their evil dictatorial states. And they wanted to drag us in to a real war, regional war, bleed us to bankruptcy, force us out, destabilize the whole region, and wage their revolutions. And, um, and so... Uh, Here we are where our government hates the Iranians and they really hate themselves for listening to Wolfowitz and doing Iraq War II, which empowered Iran even more. And so now our government in Yemen, in Syria especially, have us, in Syria up until last year, in Yemen to this day, have us fighting for al-Qaeda. Directly on behalf of men, literally sworn loyal to Ayman al-Zawahiri, the butcher of New York City, because they are fighting groups that are said to be backed by Iran, Assad's government friendly with Iran, the Houthis friendly with Iran. They act like the Houthis are Hezbollah, and it's totally a lie. Um, they have, you know, the barest of provable relationships of any kind, um, but that's good enough. Where you know I was interviewing Nasser Albi the other day, and I said, "Well, what about the war against AQAP? We're fighting against the Houthis, but they've escalated the drone war against Al Qaeda too, right?" And he goes, "Oh yeah? Well, how are they? You are telling me that the CIA is drone bombing the ranks of the UAE's ground forces? I don't think so. That's who Al Qaeda is there now. AQAP or all have joined the UAE army, guys. They're fly- they're flying with the U.S. Air Force's air cover and the U.S. Navy." At their flank, protecting them offshore. And that's how much our government hates Iran. And and most especially resents the fact that Iran reaped all the benefits of America's war, along with Osama, of America's Iraq War II. And so, you know, and at that point, and, and seriously, like, look at it. The Saudis back the L.E.T., Pakistani terrorists against India. They backed the Afghan Taliban against the US and the Haqqani network against the US in Afghanistan. Um, they backed the Sunni based insurgency, including Iraq uh, uh, Al Qaeda in Iraq in Iraq War II. They backed the Al Nusra Front and the Islamic State and Arar al Sham and these groups in the war in Syria. Uh, they really, you know, along with the USA, Took the lead role, and and with Turkey, took the lead role in creating the Islamic State. And then crying and freaking out, oh no, it wasn't supposed to conquer all of Western Iraq. It was just supposed to take over Eastern Syria there and uh, oops. So once it blew up too big, they all kind of panicked and waged Iraq War III then to destroy the Islamic State. But meanwhile, what's Iran done? Iran has worked with America to fight against these guys. So, that is kind of the same thing as as you know, the U.S. Uh, air Force flying as al-Qaeda's air cover. Only, when they're flying as Iran's air cover, it's against al-Qaeda. And again, who knocked our towers down? Al-Qaeda, not Iran. Who okay. hit the Pentagon? Al-Qaeda, not Iran. That's what really bothers me, too. I want to move to Washington, D.C., just so I can get a radio show on Washington, D.C., and just mock all these generals all day long. That you're willing to let the CIA and and these egghead think tank goofballs choose al-Qaeda over Iran for you, and you're willing to go along with that? You pussies, seriously. And in fact, like you look at the war in Syria, the military bucked, right? It was General Flynn was pass- passing information through the Germans to Assad to target and kill the CIA's al-Qaeda guys. And it was the army who was backing the Kurds who were fighting and killing the CIA's al-Qaeda guys. The Saudis al-Qaeda guys in that war. It was the Shiite militias, again, the same guys. The Bada Brigade and their friends, uh, Saib al-Al-Haq and, all, and the and the Mahdi army, Sadr's Mahdi army. They were the ones who fought Iraq War Three in Iraq to force the Islamic State out of Mosul Ramadi to Crete and... and uh, Fallujah, so <laughs> you know, I don't know man uh it it, it seems like it's kind of unfair to me for the Americans to hate Iran so much for simply just cashing all our checks, we keep writing them and all you know benefiting from all the favors we keep doing for them. you know, they say we have to stay in Syria now, why' Because Iran is there. Well, why is Iran there? I mean, they say there's like 10,000 Revolutionary Guard Corps members or something there, right? Actual Iranian special operations guys there. Well, what are they doing there? They're helping fight the CIA and Al-Qaeda. So, who's the state sponsor of terrorism again? It's the USA and the Saudis and the Turks and the Israelis and the UAE. They're the ones who back the suicide bombers. They're the ones who backed the al-Qaeda terrorists that hit our towers. And you know what's funny? Is I keep saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over for years. And this narrative just cannot kick in. It just People just can't get it. And to me, it's just easy enough. It's easy enough. Iraq War II wasn't meant to empower the Iranians and the Shia so badly. And once it did... They turned back toward the redirection, back toward the Saudis, which means back toward Al-Qaeda, back toward the Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton policy of back in Al-Qaeda. And I'm not selling everyone short, because there have been a lot of people who are good on Syria, but I still don't hear the narrative put that way. They're like, what is even going on over there anyway? Whose even side are we on? There's a giant sectarian war in the Middle East, and nobody ever even talks about who is on whose side and why, and what we're doing for them. Again, (laughs) you know?
1: It's nuts, man. Well, and I think it's it's often this guilt by association that everybody at this point it almost seems like Hezbollah gets more press than Al Qaeda, at least in in slogans and in narratives, um, which is really interesting to me. And so, if Hezbollah is on the side of the Syrians, then yep, terrorist organization on the side of the Syrians, and then they don't, you know, they just don't.
0: Yeah, helping them fight ISIS, helping them fight ISIS rebels. Yep,
1: and uh, it doesn't sound so. Uh, so crazy. Uh, I know. It's just amazing. I I mean,
0: honestly, seriously, we should all, like, take a moment every day to just, you know, giggle or cry or freak out or something, go punch a heavy bag over the fact that (laughs) they've done this thing (laughs) shaming anyone who didn't want to take the side of Al-Qaeda against Assad for, what, seven years now? I mean, I guess it's finally somewhat over now, but... They pretended that the Sunni-based insurgency, which, by the way, the Syrian army also was predominantly Sunni-based, so it's not like it was just the Sunnis versus everybody else in the Syrian war at all, but it still was a Sunni-based insurgency there, and led by the worst kind of Al-Qaeda guys. And they just pretended to not know that, or pretended that that didn't matter, or they would say weird things like, well we like in council in uh, foreign affairs we have to accept al qaeda for the time being because just assad is worse and it was so clear wasn't it all along well they have an agenda they're zionists and israel hates iran and so they hate iran and they hate the shiites more and yet and 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 in this narrative completely came to dominate The entire American argument about what was going on in Syria. When you had, in reality, the most blatant and obvious and just ridiculous treason on behalf of guys who would not denounce Zawahiri. I mean, this guy Jolani, you can look him up. Abu Muhammad Jolani. He's, I'm in al Zawahiri's humble servant. And John Brennan's.
1: Well, and you got that uh, that quote you always play from Hillary Clinton, where she says, you know, Hamas is on the side of the rebels in Syria. Or I don't know if she calls them rebels. And, you know, it's like, well, Hamas, like you guys don't normally like them. Like it's
0: right. And then uh, she says, Zawahiri has endorsed the revolution. Are we supporting al-Qaeda? So she was saying there. Yeah. You know, there's no need to twist her words, right? She was saying, if we support the revolution at all, and it's a revolution that Al-Qaeda is participating in, then like, hey, are we in essence supporting Al-Qaeda? That's That's a real concern. Yeah, it is. (laughs) You know? And yeah, she said that at the end of February 2012, just two weeks after the emails, I think these released by the State Department under the influence of the Russians, uh, showed that one of her aides had told her that, hey, look, AQ is on our side in this one, uh, because of a recent story about him uh, from February of, uh, of 2012. And so we know she must have been referring to that email. Um, when she was and she was a much more for people who don't know this history, she was really a hawk. Her and Petraeus, who was at CIA at the time, they really well, he was out sometime in twenty eleven, I guess. But at the beginning of the thing, they really had their whole plan that they really wanted to push and Obama was reluctant to do it. Obama said you can send them some trucks and some money and some tents and some, you know, equipment and whatever, but no weapons. But he did say, of course, that the CIA can help coordinate with the allies and they can buy all the weapons and send all the weapons. So that was, you know, it was still basically just deniability. But so she was defending Obama's position from the, from the questioner. Why aren't we doing more to overthrow Assad? And so she's like, she agrees with the guy, but she's in the position of defending what Obama is having her do. And so she goes, well, you know, we, it would be treason to do so, yeah. <clears throat> and then okay. she continued to insist he do so anyway. And right about one year after that interview, as she was leaving her job as secretary of state at the beginning of the second Obama term, she put a piece in the New York Times saying, yeah, Obama's a big wimp. I wanted him to go for it and he wouldn't do it. Right, And she was happy to say so.
1: Let me follow up on one other thing you, you mentioned earlier there. you You said, you know, Hezbollah does use terrorist tactics, obviously Al Qaeda uses terrorist tactics. When you when you mean when you say that about Hezbollah, do you mean like suicide terrorism against military targets or, or suicide bombings against military targets or more specifically targeting civilians?
0: Right, I guess how are you defining Actually that it- that's a really good question. I'm glad you picked up on that because honestly, I don't know. I mean, I, I think at the very least, I know they had a suicide bombing campaign against Israeli military targets. I don't know if they ever had access to get into Israel to attack civilians at all. Um, but honestly, man, I am no scholar of the war in Lebanon okay. in the 1980s. I I really have a lot of catching up to do on that one. So I'll have to plead ignorance. I know that. Okay. Uh, so, sure yeah, I may have actually overstated that because a suicide attack against military forces, it's like a terrorist Type tactic, but terrorism should have a strict definition that it it means attacks against innocent civilians in order to provoke a political reaction. So, yeah. you, using the same, you know, an asymmetric, um, suicidal attack against superior forces does not necessarily amount to terrorism. Right. You know.
1: That's kind of what I was. And whereas obviously Al Qaeda and these groups, they do that as I mean, that is their whole strategy, which.
0: Well, and the That's Taliban, too. I mean, the Taliban fact. are yeah. – in, in Afghanistan, they do suicide attacks against civilians. You know,
1: They're just not international.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're not. But they absolutely are terrorists when it comes to that stuff. Yeah.
1: Okay. I well, Let's switch to uh, a more current event, if you don't mind. Uh, Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, resigned at the request of Trump, which is a strange – term for resignation but uh what do you what do you, yeah, what do you have to say about that
0: well i hate jeff sessions i mean to tell you the truth i thought that i wouldn't really 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 mind a million percent horribly that much if he became the secretary of defense because that guy steven miller worked with him and that guy steven miller is a pretty horrible right-wing neocon On a lot of things but I think also like uh, maybe he's not a neocon I think he's kind of a right-wing you know a bit of a right-wing nationalist hawk but I think that he's not a crusader anti-Russia type anti everybody type I don't know how he is on Iran but I remember seeing him on TV fighting against I think max boot about uh, Russia and NATO expansion and all this kind of thing And I remember thinking, you know, you could do worse than to have some cranky old kind of anti-interventionist right-wingers at the Defense Department. But as the Attorney General, I can't think of a single redeeming thing about Jeff Sessions. Um, I can't imagine, honestly, anyone being worse. Like, you know, to tell you the truth, when it was this Kavanaugh thing, I'm like, man, you know how little I care about this Kavanaugh thing? If this guy dropped dead of a heart attack right now, you know who would replace him? An exact clone. You know, what are you going to get except a federalist society, rich, white, Republican, lawyer, cinder-rightist, George W. Bush administration type? There, that's Those are the only men you get to choose from. The only people you get to choose from to be associate justice during Trump years. So what freaking difference does it make? Nothing. You know what I mean? I would say, okay. But Sessions, Sessions is not just another clone. You know, Sessions, um, he has a zeal enough with his, you know, religious beliefs. In fact, he even said that, you know, no matter what the law is, you have to obey it because the Bible says, Romans 13, you have to obey the government because the government is ordained by God. When no matter what you believe about whatever government, whatever other government in the world, or even if you think that baby Jesus was whispering in George Washington's ear, the premise of the United States Constitution is that the human beings of the country are sovereign and they allow the government to exist to be their security force. It is not ordained by God. It's ordained by men who were born free. That's the lie anyway. But don't give me this crap that... You have to obey the government because to obey it is holy because God created it or it wouldn't be there. And seriously, like anyone who tries to pull that on me, I'd like to see them burned at the stake. I mean, I just I don't know how anyone has time for that for one minute in this society that Jeff Sessions would dare to invoke God for his authority as attorney general of this corrupt satanic empire is just God. I mean, That's amazing. Yeah. That's great. So. Yeah. I hope he goes straight to hospice care. There is okay. no fate too good for Jeff Sessions. And and I hope that Trump did all this to obstruct the Russia thing. I mean, may the whole Russia thing go up in flames, too. You know, may Robert Mueller, you know, get in a mysterious single car accident or something. I, let them impeach Trump over some treason that never happened. How do you like this for some treason, dude? The Democrats just ran for the House and the Senate, the House all across the country. 435 House races and what, 33 Senate races or thereabouts, because, you know, it doesn't exactly add up to 100 with the thirds there. But they just ran all these races and they did not run on, we're in a crisis because a Kremlin puppet has been installed in the White House, and has usurped our rightfully elected queen's throne, and he must be stopped because he is an agent of the Russians. And so, vote Democrat. It's an emergency. They didn't say that. They didn't even try that. How did they not try that? Could it be that everyone knows that they're lying? That nobody believes it for a minute after all of this? After two years of this? That they did their little focus groups and Democratic voters said to them, "Eh, Give me a rest with all this Kremlin crap. (laughs) And they dropped it. High treason is their theory. Donald Trump worked with Vladimir Putin to steal our presidency. I'm wiping a tear away now. Uh, And the Democrats did not run on that. It can't be because it's an obvious, ridiculous lie. And I don't know. I mean, honestly, I'm surprised they didn't. I, I actually am surprised that they didn't run on it anyway. But I guess it must be that their polls said that people wanted them to just shut the hell up about it. See, that you I can scream and right. cry all day, but nobody is going to believe that a billionaire real estate tycoon from Manhattan is a communist agent. And it doesn't matter that the Soviet Union ceased to exist 25 years ago or whatever. The Kremlin's the Kremlin. And this guy, whatever the hell he is, is an American patriot type. So people just don't buy it. It doesn't stick because it doesn't make sense. You know? And also, it doesn't. it's not true you know, every every little bit of evidence they've had has been amounted to nothing. You know, like the case for Iraq War II, 100 times zero is still zero.
1: You know, I I, I want to believe you that they all think it's BS. And I, I'd really like that. Although, I don't know if you've seen this, but since because the person who's the acting attorney general post-Sessions is, has said critical things about the um, Russia investigation, now there's I, I can't believe this is a thing, and I, part of me wants to meet someone who attends such an event, but part of me is also horrified by it that there is a uh, a protect Mueller rally in D.C. I I hope it had no. I
0: saw ever. some pictures of it, and it's like forty people out there, and then okay. you know I saw an so article 40 40 that said, oh, massive people. rallies planned across the country. Really, you're gonna have really, and then what's worse? I mean, I can't figure it out, but you're gonna get. Democrats to turn out to protest the firing of Jeff Sessions. Hi, I'm a liberal well, Democrat. Was, what are you doing here on the street corner today? I'm protesting the firing of Jeff Sessions, who says yeah, that Jesus sent him to kill me. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. It was it was amazing to read some of the the people that were calling for the protest because they're trying to, they're trying to make it nuanced. That no 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 we don't mean we liked Jeff because S- of course what are you going to say to that? It's yeah, but. No, Mueller is, he is still, I I guess my point is, to some degree, he still has the weird, like, I don't know, like he's a national hero figure for, like, some aspects of Democrats, which, again, and I, I don't mean to impugn them, I, because I think, in some sense, this is my theory, but I, I just prefer to, to think of it this way, and so it makes me happier to think of it this way, which is that... They would like to think, well, you know, they hate Trump. So the way that they rationalize that Trump could be elected is like, it's not that all of my friends and family are evil. It's just that they got tricked. So it's really them trying to see the best in people. It just has a horrible. You're a very generous
0: guy, Eric. That's that's what I'm
1: that's what I'm going with.
0: I you're really a nice Don't dude, ruin it, dude. God. Don't ruin it. Yeah. I, prefer no, I mean, that. there's a point to that. I, I see what you're saying. It's a a bit of a rationalization. You know what? I mean, I think, I don't know why anybody has to go further than, he was running against the single worst human being alive on the planet. How about that? That they couldn't find the- a worse person in the child rapist wing in the Supermax in Florence, Colorado. <laughs> and so they ran Hillary Clinton.
1: I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that some people may not see her in that light, Scott. It. I've heard. I've heard that's not. Uh,
0: I'm that's just not saying. How you know it, what? There's wisdom in entertaining that point of view for a minute. Like, stop and think about it. Why did everybody hate Bill Clinton so bad in the 1990s? It was because of her. It wasn't because he burned Waco or covered up Oklahoma City or the Gulf War illness or bombed Iraq every three days for eight years straight or said mean things to Paula Jones. It was because he was married to Hillary Clinton, spit. Come on, her approval rating has never, even if you love her, her approval rating has never been higher than 40%. Her disapproval rating is constantly at like 45. Like I outright do not like this lady. is at 45% since 1992, okay? Bad candidate. Uh, however you feel about her we don't like her (laughs) you know and think about it you know what again this doesn't have to be your point of view but just accept the fact about your neighbors okay that she's a woman which means she either has to be hot like say sort of kind of Sarah Palin not my type but you could see that in her or she has to be like Ann Richards like very motherly grandmotherly and sweet and dear and endearing to people right? Dave Smith has a stand-up thing about this. She's not charming. Bill Clinton charming. George W. Bush in his own way if you're susceptible to that particular kind of charm, he's a charming guy. Barack Obama he's, yeah, it works on enough people. Who can Hillary Clinton charm? A librarian? A group of librarian ladies or something, you know? At a, a national public radio meeting? Come on. Anyway, sorry. Don't get me started on oh, how much I hate this woman. I yeah, got a lot sorry. more than that. I was just yeah, no, no, no. Let's, scratching let's, let's, the surface. But seriously, like, no matter how much you like her, you have to recognize the scientific fact that she is hated. She has been a hate figure in America for generations. Well, a generation and change. So, come on. That's really your candidate? The old bald Jew has like 5,000 people coming to his rallies like almost Barack Obama level Uh, he's charming Bernie Sanders if you're into that kind of thing he's got 5,000 people coming to his rallies she's got 16 people and the bosses go no we have to stick with her we cannot nominate the guy who people kind (laughs) of like because that wouldn't make any sense right? The then guy who never shuts up about way. the economy. How did her husband win in the first place? It's the economy, stupid. What does she run as? Trump is mean to fat girls. <laughs> How could you vote for a guy who's mean to fat girls? No offense to fat girls out there, but I'm just saying, that's. we all know who Donald Trump is. You're not going to teach us a new thing about his character like that. That's going to change anybody's mind, you know? anyway so,
1: let, let, let's hold it there because you know if uh if you get your wish she may run again in 2020
0: and you can enjoy that oh my that god plenty more oh my god about. please I know, i'm sorry I,
1: i'm please. sorry i didn't mean didn't mean to get you sidetracked listen that, man great so
0: thought. i didn't i quit watching tv as soon as the last campaign started because i just can't stand the sound of her voice i haven't really turned the tv back on since except just a couple of occasions i just can't do tv news at all um and, uh, and she's a big part of that. I hate her so much. And I was going to quit politics and maybe move to Australia if she won that election. I just cannot deal with... It's the voice. Just like Sarah Palin. It's not a partisan thing. And I like women, so it's not like a, a misogynist thing either. But it's those two women, particularly, their voices are just like needles in my eardrums. And um, But I only tell you that so I can tell you this. If Hillary Clinton runs again, oh, man, I'm sucking up every minute of it. I'm dvr every minute of it and playing it while I sleep at night. I I can't wait. And, and I, I'm willing to bet she's going to do it. I don't think anybody can stop her from trying to run. And I don't think she'll get past the primaries. But I am going to die laughing. And, and I don't care. Seriously, if I die in the year 2020... Because I died laughing at Hillary Clinton, then th- that'll be okay. You know, I would rather live to 85 or whatever, but I could settle for dying laughing at Hillary Clinton during her next attempt. And it's gonna be the greatest thing that ever happened, dude. You know why? It's because she has no sense of humor whatsoever. So she has no idea how hilarious she is. You know, she is she yep. she's the perfect mark. I can't wait. I can't wait. Please do it, Hillary. Please
1: so pivoting from that real quick uh so back to sessions i guess that's where we started here uh speaking of needles to your eardrums i guess so the the replacements they're talking about are i've heard tom cotton and lindsey graham are two kind of potentials or maybe the guy who lost in kansas but since he's the guy who lost in kansas i feel like that's less likely now Yeah.
0: I I don't know. I guess I would settle for Tom Cotton if it keeps him out of the defense spot, because I'm afraid that after Mattis will be Tom Cotton in defense. And Mm -hmm. so I'm sure he'll be an absolute nightmare of an attorney general. But he's sitting in the Senate right now like a ticking bomb. So which way to throw him? You know what I mean? What are you going (laughs) to do with the guy? If, If there was a way to just know that they're just going to leave him in the Senate and he's not going to ever do any worse than that, then I guess that'd be nice. But, um,
1: but the idea of him him as
0: secretary of defense, I'm telling you that would be an extremely dangerous problem. I mean, in the very worst, absolute red alert, dig a freaking nuke shelter kind of a way. I mean, my God, man, that would be the worst thing that ever happened to this planet. I swear to God, you know is he
1: pretty bad on russia i mean he's he's bad bad on on
0: everything and he's a dumb dumb bastard and he doesn't think so either i mean he is just the worst kind of stupid ass right-wing warmonger no nothing know-it-all idiot oh and he was a captain in iraq war too so you have to shut up boy and respect him and all this too it's really bad He's really bad, dude. I'm telling you, man. I moved to the southern hemisphere or something if that guy is Secretary of Defense.
1: I was going to ask why Australia, but I think I got my answer. Yeah, yeah man, the H bomb fallout.
0: fallout, I want to get as far away as I can.
1: Okay, what about uh, Lindsey Graham on that on that one? How do you feel about him being um, the
0: next turn You know general?
1: what? I I same theory. I,
0: on his domestic you know, police state type issues, I'm sure he's just straight down the line, liberal, Republican, moderate, middle, extremist, horrible on everything, right? Bad on drug wars, bad on every kind of crackdown on anyone involved in any kind of government service of any kind. Or He's a horrible right-wing bastard. You know, he's, he's um, you yeah, know, maybe compensating for something. But uh, I would expect him also to be an absolute menace as an attorney general. I don't guess there's really a danger that he could be secretary of defense. Um, although God help us if, if Lindsey Graham was secretary of defense either. I don't think that's really going to happen. I can't really see that. Um, yeah,
1: but I could see him kind of switching with, I don't know, UN ambassador because, you know, Haley's out. And, well, she's not technically out, but she's leaving or one of those. so embarrassing just,
0: though, man. I think Trump, like from a TV direct, you know, producer point of view, I think you just want to leave him in the Senate. I don't see what good he is as a, yeah. like, part of the uh, official rotating cast of the show. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's yeah. more like well, a Skippy, the next door neighbor guy. Um, hmm. I don't know. I mean, right. I'm sure whoever it's going to be is going to be bad, but... Yeah. Um, you know what? I don't know. Was was uh, I think I actually read a thing that said that Sessions was, I could be wrong about this, Eric, help me out, that he was not undoing or redoing the Obama guidelines about leaving the states alone on legalizing pot and stuff like that, that people were really afraid he was going to do a crackdown and that he had decided not to pretty recently.
1: I, I do know what you're referring to, but I don't. I don't recall enough about it. Yeah. I, I want to say he did try to do what he could to make it worse, but his hands were kind of tied. You're t- the Cole memo, right? I think that's what, or Cole amendment, Cole memo.
0: Yeah, you know what? I that only barely rings a bell when you name it, so I'm I'm okay. out of it.
1: Yeah, I won't. I don't want to. Yeah, but uh, speak you know what?
0: It. I think yeah, I think it's probably too late for the feds to try to roll that back. I think even the probably the federal cops. Or I don't know about the cops themselves and their unions and whatever, but it seems like the leaders of the bureaucracy don't want to try to crack, you know, undo legal pot in Colorado. I don't know. I might be whistling past the graveyard on that. It could be that they don't, you know, that they are unhappy with the status quo and the way things are going and do want to roll it back. You know, I guess I never considered that there was really much of a fight on that side. But, uh has been no, going so, their yeah, way so, for a while, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, he was bad on this. He So it was saying, you know, the Cole memo was establishing priorities of like, hey, don't worry as much about pot in states where it's legal, more or less. And then Sessions rescinded that, which basically he was just removing a guideline. So the exact impact is not, you know, like, are they immediately going to switch and now start prosecuting all these crimes that they lo- like that they didn't? all these federal crimes that they didn't worry as much about I mean so the impact isn't obvious but as I was just looking this up it said that you know the few kind of like legalized cannabis uh, stocks that are on the market they're all up you know double digit percentages because Sessions is no longer in power which I think is kind of funny It's sort of an indication
0: yeah anyway (laughs) hey ask me about Somalia real quick
1: Hey,
0: Scott, what about Somalia? All right, so somebody in the the Reddit room asked about Somalia 93, um, Black Hawk Down. So what happened was, and I never read the book about this. I really always wanted to, um, but I'm pretty sure it would have been William Norman Grigg. There was a great article I remember reading back in The New American about this. You may remember... Uh, Eric or audience, the photos of the UN peacekeepers holding the little black boy over the fire in the barrel um, from back then, from from '93, and there were there was also a, a little boy with a gun to his head being forced to eat worms, and then he pukes it up, and then they make him eat it again uh, at gunpoint. And this was Belgian, Canadian, and Italian soldiers who were part of the UN peacekeeping mission there. And they were committing these war crimes against these helpless Somalis. And especially children there. And they were firing artillery. The Italians were just firing artillery at random into Mogadishu for fun. Like it was just blowing off fireworks or whatever. For weeks. And then they were sent. The Rangers and Delta Force were sent to arrest the leader, this you know, top warlord, Adid, and when they showed up i guess they've been doing kind of the same maneuvers over and over again too so like they made they you know they were made a pretty easy target and they got taken down one helicopter crash and there was you know a big shootout and they lost i guess all of their guys or almost all of their guys um in the the black hawk down shootout and then some of their bodies were dragged through the streets And it was this big outrage when Bill Clinton was just coming into power and was like, man, I didn't invade Somalia. And this started as a peacekeeping mission under Bush senior. And, you know, I don't want any part of this, man. I'm going to go ahead and just cut this off and go now. And so. You know, the part of the story that the Americans hear is one day brave Americans went to save the little helpless people from the bad person, but then the bad person killed them and whatever, and it was really bad. And I guess the Democrats sold us out or whatever, you know, something like that. and, and and so completely neglect the fact that the US was there operating under the auspices of the UN and the UN peacekeepers, no matter what color, their little powder blue, baby blue helmets and flags, they're war criminals and they'd been committing war crimes, killing these people and and driving them to resistance, of course. And so and then the whole thing was like this incoherent command too, where I remember um, And I found the quotes later. I don't know if you can still find this, but there was an episode of Frontline PBS about this where the father of one of the dead rangers or Delta operators, I forget which, I think a ranger, confronted Bill Clinton at some garden party type, you know, lay a wreath, ceremony, crap, some kind of thing, you know. And he said to Bill Clinton, I don't understand something. I want you to help explain something to me. You sent my son To arrest this warlord a deed that day. And Bill Clinton says, Yeah, that's right. And he goes, But at the same time, you the same day, you know, within a short time frame, you were sending guys to try to meet with him, to talk with him, to negotiate and bring him in. And so I don't understand that if you were in the middle of doing that, why would you send my son out on this dangerous mission where he got killed? When's it's a guy that you're trying to negotiate with at the same damn time. And this is what the father said to Frontline. He said, and then the President of the United States looked at me with just this blank stare, the most blank stare I've ever seen on the face of a man. And he just said to me, well, I asked Tony Lake the same question. And that was his national security advisor. And that was his way of saying, screw you, dude, I don't know. I don't run things around here. I'm just some asshole. I don't know. You know, whatever. Blowing yeah. them off, basically. And 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 kind of illustrating that, you know, this is it was a government program, what was going on in Somalia. So no wonder it went from mission creep, from delivering some food aid to targeting some warlord and negotiating with the warlord and this, that, and the other damn thing, as every department tried to get in on it and try to build it into a thing. And then, of course, this is really important because... Bin Laden said, look how easy it is to make them run away. All you got to do is set off a couple truck bombs. And that served as a wonderful talking point for the American Hawks, who said the lesson of 9-11 is you can never, ever leave anywhere or you prove them right that we'll ever turn and run. So we can never, ever turn and run. But more importantly, Bin Laden said that it was his men who had taken down the Americans there and that he had sent them there. And that the purpose was to try to provoke the Americans in rage to double the war and to get bogged down in a war of attrition is what Osama bin Laden told Abdelbari Bari Atwan, the English reporter from uh, uh, I forgot the name of his paper off the top of my head. But anyway, the guy that wrote the secret history of Al-Qaeda um, and he told him. Uh, Yeah, so my plan was to recreate my war against the Russians in Afghanistan by luring the Americans into getting bogged down in a war in Somalia. Again, bin Laden, this almost insane Leninist where he's got this, you know, take some eggs to make an omelet kind of attitude where no matter how many Somalis have to die, he's not from Somalia, he's not from Afghanistan, what does he care no matter how many of them have to die, it's worth it if he can bog the Americans down and bleed them to death and break their empire. That was always his agenda. And so, you know, a bad lesson taken from that and a good one, too, if you're paying attention close.
1: Right. Well, it's interesting. It's a probably a good place for us to leave it. It kind of comes back to where we started of questioning, you know, do these folks have good intentions, the people that make these policies or is it cynical or what is it? And you know, you kind of raised one thing that could be a third route, which it's just a government program and everybody in it is just doing their piece. And there is no grand strategy at all.
0: Yeah. And, and you know just, what? Most of the evil is totally banal. We see it, right? Yeah. Like there's some, there's some real racism and some real kind of avarice in there, but a lot of it is like, you know, geez, now that the Vietnam war is over, you know, what are we, who are we going to sell helicopters to? You know, let's lobby. We'll just get Congress to ratchet up arms sales to the Shah in Iran. That probably will be a smart policy that'll work out well. We'll Sell them some F-14s and maybe a nuclear reactor or something. And then so, you know, it's just, yeah, from their point of view, it's just business. From their point of view... The the, uh, rotating board of directors of all these arms manufacturers and congressional staffers and military officers and all these things that like, well, yeah, these are the people qualified to do these jobs. Who else are we supposed to get? You know, they don't even see it as wrong. No, as I talked about with Stephen that in that thing, that even according to his critics, I don't know all of them, but at least some of his critics who have you know interviewed the guy and done real journalism about him, that Bruce Jackson from Lockheed really believe that NATO expansion was a great idea. It'll help spread American hegemony and therefore peace and democracy in the world. And the Russians won't mind, because we're going to have a Russian-NATO council and maybe even bring them into NATO one day. It'll be fine. And so, don't worry about it. And yeah, we're going to sell a lot of airplanes, too wink wink <laughs> you know and then the same guy yeah. moves on and creates the committee for the liberation of iraq which also involved a hell of a lot of lockheed products so mm, yeah you know it's definitely a, a good amount of self-selection yeah and you Lockheed's know what like isn't that the famous really upton sinclair it. or something it's impossible to get someone to see what their salary depends on them continuing to not see or something like that that you know Hey, Bruce, setting people on fire is no good way to turn him into a Democrat. (laughs) They're like, yeah, come on, sure it is. He didn't want to hear that. You know, I don't know. Yeah, and you're not going to have a Peacenick
1: lead the committee to expand NATO. That's just not going to happen. And you
0: know what? I mean, look— it's also important to note that the Zionists have been discussing destroying all Arab societies and breaking them into as small pieces as possible for a 100 years. From Jabotinsky through uh, Yeded Onan, uh, from the Onan... Uh, you no, the Yanon plan. dead Yanon. I got my Y in the wrong place there. dead Yanon plan from 1981, which, by the way, if you read it, is absolutely insane. It's about how the Soviets are about to conquer the entire world, and it'll be poor Israel alone without even America to protect it. And what are they going to do? And it's complete, it's fucking madness, dude. Um, and then, of course, the clean break. And you can read Jonah Goldberg in... Uh, the National Review, Baghdad Delinda Est, where he's channeling Michael Adine and who he published for years and years, saying, Faster, please, faster, please, more regime change all the time. Turn the Middle East into a boiling cauldron until whatever comes out of that will be better for us, they thought. So that to me is pretty overtly evil. You know, when Michael Edine is is bragging and and saying, just wage total war and our children will sing songs about us in the future and all of this. That like, yeah, right, Michael Adine waging total war. You know? That pansy at the coffee shop, you know, is that who you're talking about, that guy? You go wage total war and kill innocent people doing it. Because, you know, he thinks he's going to be some kind of hero someday for getting rid of the Ayatollah or tricking you into getting rid of the Ayatollah for him. Making you think Iran is the biggest state sponsor of terrorism (laughs) so that you'll get rid of his enemy for him. I mean, that to me is pretty overtly evil and ugly. And yet, at the same time, I guess I got to throw in for Michael who and he's the one who said... Every 10 years, you have to take some little pathetic country and throw it up against the wall just to show that we mean business. So that's pretty evil. But my wife has interviewed him like numerous times, and she says he's completely crazy. And that he thinks that at any moment, all the Jews of America could be rounded up and put on boxcars and exterminated. And that, like, he's living in a totally different world than we're living in, dude. He's completely nuts. And so for him, it's, you know, the Holocaust was the day before yesterday and the day after tomorrow. If we don't do everything we can to avert it right now, that's his total mindset always. And so he's in a sense, it's not just malevolence, right? Like he really is that afraid, you know? Yeah.
1: So he's being honest. It's just the outcome is just.
0: Don't forget about the total war thing, though, because that's still pretty ugly. The boiling cauldron. I mean, what kind of guy sits there and talks about a region of the planet Earth full of humans like that and says we must turn it into a boiling cauldron? Let's regime change all these countries at the same time, set them all at war, and then see what happens. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty that's, bad. Yeah, it is. Yeah.
1: Well, on that, uh, on that light note, let's... Uh Let's wrap up for today, and we'll we'll do another one of these again soon. Unless you got any final thoughts,
0: uh, I would just want to say real quick. I think Patrick Coburn has uh, been okay on denouncing the. Uh, I don't know denouncing, but covering the reality of the the white helmets and what a farce they are. I guess it kind of rings a bell that maybe he was like soft on them one time in one article, like citing some claim of theirs or something, but. Some very slight deviation. I, that doesn't sound right, but I can't remember what it was. But someone asked, what, what about the White Helmets and how come Patrick Coburn doesn't doesn't criticize them? And I'm just not sure that's true. But do you want to know what really is good? I mean, and the White Helmets basically are nothing but the PR front for Al-Qaeda and their associates in the Syrian war. And they're sponsored by the MI6 and some NGOs and cutouts and all this stuff and the best sourcing on that is max blumenthal who is really a talented reporter and i will criticize him a little and say he was actually bad on syria at first he was like yeah the arab spring and all this and he didn't differentiate correctly and he caught himself on the wrong side of that for like a year or more but then he got good and he's really been making up for it since you know i don't know 2013 or 14 at least or something he's been really great on it so, and and he's certainly been great on the White Helmets. So, and you know what? There's been some other stuff, but I'm sorry. I'm just forgetting off the top of my head for some reason, all the best stuff to recommend. But you read the, I think it's a two-parter by Max on them. And uh, that's certainly more than enough should be. Yeah.
1: Over at his uh, Grey Zone project, I believe.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it was at Alternet, but now it's its own separate thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, okay, so next time, keep it on the list, Eric. Next time, we still yep. got to talk about Bosnia. We got to talk about Mexico drug wars. And we got to talk about the INF Treaty. I'm going to interview, I have nine interviews lined up for Tomorrow Kids for Friday. Um, so that is going to include James Carroll, author of House of War, about the Pentagon, which I've never read, which, you know, everybody owes me a smack for that. I We should have all read James Carroll, House of War by now, um, but he uh, has a great piece for Tom Dispatch about the INF Treaty, which someone also asked about, the Intermediate Range yep. uh, Nuclear Forces Treaty, which is huge. It's, it's the essence of importance, and so uh, we're going to be covering that on the show tomorrow, so that'll help cover that. And then, on borders, basically, I'm Hornberger, or you know David Hathaway, if you want an Austrian school perspective, uh, like a, a praxeological case, um, about the borders that differs from the Hans Hoppe view, then there's David Hathaway and, uh, Will Grigg and I both wrote short introductions to that book. It's called individual versus immigration, individual versus national borders. So it is talking about in a private property anarchy, how things should be, and then what that means for how we deal with it now, et cetera, and so forth like that. And so, um, and it, and it is a Misesian, praxeological, logical case. It doesn't mention the United States or Mexico in there anyway, uh, anywhere. It's, you know, all theoretical Austrian school uh, analysis for those of you who are into that.
1: Yep, that sounds good. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we will uh, keep some of these on the list so we can elaborate more on them next time,
0: yeah. as oh.
1: well as any other questions people have.
0: Yeah, and one more thing I'll say is... um. And I should have said this at the beginning, dude, I guess. But, hey, um, I met a lot of people lately, man. I've been doing a bunch of traveling and doing a lot of different speeches. I've had a lot of people come up to me and say that they love the show and et cetera like that. And, um, you know, I really appreciate that a lot. And I wanted to say that, you know, I guess, you know, because I just do the interview show now. Um, so it's always kind of off topic to bring up off topic stuff or whatever, but I'd like to say that I really appreciate that people appreciate the show. It is kind of a weird sort of a one way communication where I just put this stuff out there and I don't really know who's listening a lot of the time. And then I meet flesh and blood human beings who say to me like, yeah, for the last six years, you're my guy, dude. And uh, you know, blah, 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 like that. And so that's cool as hell. It's been great to see everybody. Um, and that's, you know, I went to DC and to, Uh, Rhode Island, and then down to Houston. That's three just in the last couple of days and all that. And then also, on scotthorton.org, I finally updated the speeches page. So now it doesn't just say, hey, hire Scott to give a speech. Now, it actually has my speeches, including the one in Houston that I gave about how how, uh, Ron Paul is the greatest American hero ever, and my kind of right-wing anti-war speech that I gave in Washington, D.C., that Breitbart You know, ran on their site and a bunch of other stuff, including going back all the way to 2008, see how good I am on everything. See how I say the exact same thing 10 years ago as I say right now. Um, And that's all at scotthorton.org under the video section there. If anybody wants to check that out. All right. Sounds good. Oh, and I'm writing a new book. So far, it's called God Dang It, Bobby Time to End the War on Terrorism. Although I'm going to have to change it. I was thinking about. What do you think about it on one line? What do you think about enough already? See, it's not good enough, is it? I want it to be something like that, though.
1: Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Enough already
0: isn't good enough. I like it, but no, I don't like it enough.
1: But I... Maybe, uh... Yeah. I don't know how much this translates or how a mainstream reference this is, but, uh... Is this a thing everywhere where people, the way they end things before, like, you're, you know, like you're stuck at like a long meal or something and everybody wants to leave, but no one's the first person who's going to get up and they're like, well, time to be, you know, is that a thing? Is that just an Idaho thing? I don't know.
0: uh No, no I mean, I, that's a thing. Except I don't think it's going to work as a title. I think it would be too uh, confusing uh, as a title. Uh, it's too bad that there well, aren't better no. fools cliches. The. I did, I do have right now a chapter, like a subchapter, about Yemen called Fools Rush In, where I'm kind of oh, criticizing yes. yeah. uh, the Houthis and the American side as well uh, for doing stupid things. Um, mm-hmm. But then I realized that that's some hacky movie that came out recently. So it's not just a cliche, but it's like a direct pop culture reference to a recent movie. So I don't want that because that'll be confusing. You know, people won't get the reference. they'll They'll get the wrong reference, you know.
1: Yeah, you could have something with uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll 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 have to talk more about it. I was gonna say something with Bushes. Fool me once, you know, fool me
0: seven times, or however. Yeah, no, that's too know. much of like a Democrat yeah. type cliche well, criticism there. Yeah, <clears throat> you know, yeah, I don't know. But I got time because well, I will tell concerned. you what, it's gonna take me months to get this thing ready to publish. So the first draft is done, but I got so much work to do. I don't even know how much work to do. I have yet you know or how much work i have yet to do to do yet yeah yes got it exactly okay man listen thanks for listening to me eric
1: yeah no problem thanks for talking it's a good time as always
0: yeah man um all right good deal uh see you next time whenever that is
1: see you guys all
0: right